Hello and welcome to this FE3 podcast. This time we're talking about reward and recognition in an age of austerity, i.e. when no one has any money. Currently, times are pretty tough for employees. After the recession in 2008, average wages fell in real terms fairly consistently until mid-2014, and they're still not back to their pre-recession levels. If inflation continues to rise, the Institute for Fiscal Studies believe that we might see wages falling behind again in the coming months. But organisations haven't been squirrelling away their money. Profitability for UK companies has risen by less than 2% over the past 10 years. So possibly as a result of this, many organisations are looking to motivate and retain their employees without using financial rewards. The subject of motivation is a bit of a black box that management scholars have been trying to illuminate for the past five decades. In the past, of course, money was the answer. There's no doubt that money does motivate. The issue is that rewards are often a bit of a shot in the dark. As Professor Stephen Kerr said, we reward A while hoping for B. And what's more... We go on doing it. A paper on reward by Chapman and Kellier in 2011 notes that organisations offer what's legal, i.e. minimum wage, working hours, holiday, but mirror what others do in their sector. So given that organisations work to the same legal framework and do just what everyone else in the sector is doing, what happens is the same rewards get offered over and over. Same old, same old. This lack of innovation is likely to be detrimental to a workforce which has changed dramatically over the past 30 years. However, one visitor to our recent Mindstretch is hoping to achieve something rather different with his organisation's reward and recognition scheme as part of a new approach to developing HR policy. Hello, I'm Paul Wally. I'm the Director of Strategy at the Mayor's Office for Policing and Crime. I understand, Paul, that you're currently looking at the reward and recognition system in MOPAC. Can you tell us a bit about it? That's right. The Mayor's Office Policing Crime is actually quite a small organisation. It oversees the Metropolitan Police, uh, but it also has uh, more of a convening role. So you get lots of local authorities and charities and we have partners uh, around the table when the Mayor asks for them to do so. And there's quite a big delivery role. So with an oversight, a convene and a delivery uh, role within a very small organisation, it really is kind of incumbent on us to to ensure that our reward and recognition system adequately reflects what are actually very different needs of each of those different types of people, different skill sets. So having a single strategy is our first action. And then actually, because we're so small, we can also largely be in control of our own destiny in terms of designing and implementing it. We don't have to actually ask that many people to fundamentally change the system. So it's a good test bed. Right, so what are you planning to do? I've always been really keen to develop a bottom-up HR process. Particularly in the public sector, I think some of the pilots around using a bell curve and forced distribution for a fixed amount of money mm. has been shown to kind of over time be detrimental, especially in, in big teams or big operational areas. But actually, m- most of the people who join the public sector have a kind of an intrinsic need and want to do something good. That's, at least that's the reason they might have joined in the first place, even if it's different from why they stay. So the challenge is how, how do we 
take back people's that initial idea of why they joined. What do we need to do in terms of appealing to their to their sense of purpose and their sense of uh, autonomy and mastery to allow them to feel most accomplished in their in their job. Now, all of that is a very long way of saying. Actually, if you just ask staff themselves what they want from a HR system, they'll often tell you. Mopac has three different roles, requiring three different types of skill and probably different types of individual. So even with a small organisation, that sounds complicated. I asked Paul what the benefits were of creating an HR system this way. I would say that the the benefits of a bottom-up approach is that staff feel actively involved, you can see the passion, um, you don't have to develop something and then to produce a communications and a stakeholder strategy because it's literally being developed uh, amongst themselves. The drawback is it's all very part-time and it's slow. So as a senior team, myself and the chief executives and the other directors took that conscious decision that yes, we could, we could write something very quickly uh, in a couple of months and get it out and that would be our new HR policy. But actually it will work far better if it's bottom-up. And uh, the, the quid pro quo is we have to wait for, for some of those uh, things to come to fruition. The UK public sector hasn't had a significant keeping pace with inflation pay rise in 10 years. I asked Paul, did anyone simply ask for a rise? So the simple answer is yes, absolutely, <laughs> of course. As, as the public sector and, and many private sector organisations have, have suffered from, from years of of, of stagnation, it is important to look at what else we can do in, in that pay envelope. You know, we have to be honest with our staff that public sector pay policies are driven by the Treasury and national government, and you know that's big P politics that, frankly, we, we are as an organisation are not going to influence. But what we can do, what we can change, is the bits that go alongside your, your basic salary, so paternity or maternity or. Um, flexibility, linking into development opportunities and talent management, all of which actually you can you can manage within the pay envelope. You often been as much or more to people because in many ways you've banked the pay already. I mean the, the, the pay was the thing that attracted you to the job or and is probably keeping you there. If you're doing a really good job at work or you want to develop yourself, that's the things that we can mm. offer flexibility on and, and offer a choice on. Has he had any surprises? Have employees asked for things not previously on his radar? Not, not yet, but I think that's partly because I'm just genuinely interested in this field and so I've, I've read quite a lot about it and so the things that we're, we're seeing are kind of variations of, of what other organisations have done, so it's kind of a bit of a pick and mix. I would, I would say though, it's not what I would have chosen had I sat down for a week and just wrote it myself. My previous job, I was Director of Immigration Enforcement and I kind of instituted big ceremonial presentations and kind of family and friends because for the operational world, it's, you know, it's, it's important to do that. For here, it's more of a policy oversight body. And so the types of activity that are coming through are just very different to what I would have designed. And it's not a bad thing. It's not, I hope it's, a, it's showing that we're allowing our staff to do their own thing rather than impose something. It will be interesting to see if Mopac's approach to reward and recognition yields results in terms of retention and productivity. The literature's current favourite theory is about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation is where people do something because they get satisfaction from doing it. Extrinsic motivation 
is where satisfaction comes from the consequences of doing it, not the activity. Most often, this is about either avoiding punishment or getting a specific reward. And it's easy to see why management is eager to cultivate intrinsic motivation. It could cost them less for a start. But it's complicated to apply it to the real world, to a real workforce. Because, let's face it, most jobs have enjoyable bits, which promote intrinsic motivation, and they have dull bits, which may need some encouragement, like an extrinsic reward. Perhaps the thing to take out of the literature is that, as Paul says, people want different things, and if you ask them, they'll tell you what this something is. However, this does require some flexibility from the organisation, and not every organisation will have that flexibility. But in the final analysis, intrinsic motivation has been shown over lots of studies and meta-studies to be a moderate to strong predictor of performance, and that's regardless of incentives. Which leads me to think that rather than stressing about the incentives, we should be perhaps developing jobs that people can enjoy. That sounds to me like a good start. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast was inspired by a FE3 Mind Stretch run earlier this year. If you'd like to attend a future Mind Stretch, please send an email to karen at fe3.co.uk. And thank you to Ben Sound for the music. <laughs>